John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed Omnibus Addenda, Volume 32, Entry 786.ZC0508, Certificate Number 25185, Thomas Midgley. Good grief, this is going back all the way to 2018. That's the 18th entry in the Omnibus, if you were listening in chronological order. Thomas Midgley, um, if you'll recall, was the chemist that gave everyone lead poisoning. And then put a hole in the ozone layer to boot. He's our man. I feel, yeah, he really sums up <laughs> American ingenuity in the 20th century. Here, here. He? <laughs> USA. Uh, have you noticed he's been kind of back in the public eye lately? Did you see this on social media? I kept seeing... This guy sucks. Pieces about Midgley. I did, and I was like, you know, all you have to do is go back and listen to Omnibus from 2018. You'll know all about it. We were years ahead of the Midgley curve. Um, just to go to the, just to make the point that you know, to encourage mail, I think it's important. M A L E. No, oh. we don't believe in that. <laughs> no, thank you, sir. We encourage female and non-binary here on the Omnibus. Mm-hmm. If anything, we discourage male. Discourage male. You know that's a little what bit toxic. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying there in uh, in the, in Washington is that liberals are actually discouraging men. Is that is shouldn't that be transitive? Discouraging them from what? Just discouraging them in general, giving them feelings of, of discouragement. Yeah, good. Discour- discouraging them from even being. Maybe Ken. men should feel a little a little uh, despondent. That's what the liberals are doing now. As the you know, as the more skeptical voice here on Omnibus. Now, I wonder, I wonder whether we should discourage men. Are you just asking the questions? <laughs> you know what? I just want to teach the controversy. Men, you know, they seem to do stuff. They seem to do a lot of stuff. Why would, why would we discourage them? Le- because you know. here are some of the things they do. Invent leaded gasoline. Ugh. Punch a hole in the ozone. Oh, boy. So, somebody should discourage Thomas Midgley. <laughs> Too late. Too late. Uh, no, to encourage M-A-I-L, male. Oh, to get male. I see. I think it's important that we read the dumbest. You're talking about, you're talking about uh, armor, right? Made from chain, chain links? Yes, mithril. <laughs> I'm speaking, of course, of mithril. If you have any kind of chain link armor you'd like to send us here at Omnibus, that is 55744, Shoreline, Washington. John always wonders why orc daggers just bounce right off me, and he doesn't know. The viewers send me, listeners send me mithril all the time. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, to encourage receiving weird emails and letters, I think it's important that we read the worst and the dumbest mail we receive. 
Of course. Because then people will understand what a low bar it is to to get on the show. Yeah. Send us mail. Here's an example of how little you have to try. This is the kind of thing that will get you mentioned. (laughs) A listener named Eric has a theory about Thomas Midgley. And uh, if you recall, the leaded gas thing has led to a lot of sociology about which American behaviors of the 20th century might be linked to leaded gas. Could crime rates, for example. Or lead paint. Sorry, yeah, lead paint. But it could be the gas. I mean, mm-hmm. didn't that go in the air too? No, it was. It was the gas too. I mean, I'm sure I'm, I was licking plenty of lead paint off of windowsills as a kid, but I was also breathing deep. Um, the gathering gloom from the lead from the leaded <laughs> gas at the yeah the gathering gloom of the Chevron station. Uh, Eric wanted to share his pet theory that leaded gas is the only reason for the phenomenon of woods porn. Okay. I guess I have to ask. You know the 20th century trope of uh, of uh, rain-soaked uh, printed pornography just turning up in the woods? Oh, is that what we're calling woods porn, or are we calling that woods porn? What did you think it was, like Tiger Woods' personal collection? I didn't even want to guess. There's so much porn now, it's just impossible to know. But imagine a time when it was scarce and it would be stumbled upon in the form of, like, a stash in the woods. Um, Eric's theory is also that, uh, I mean, often it's... um. He is pointing. He's pushing back against the the, the prevailing theory, which is that uh, internet porn wiped out woods porn. But in fact, his idea is that uh, he's a '90s kid who does not think of that as a woods porn as a artifact of his era, but in fact as of an earlier time. Yes. Which means there's a gap of decades between the pornography disappearing from the woods and the pornography appearing on Usenet. So what explains that gap? He thinks woods porn went away right when. Lead got removed from gasoline. It was oddball Travis Bickle or uh, Norman Bates types who would actually feel bad enough about the porn they bought in a moment of weakness at a gas station to to take to the woods. Uh, if you felt good about your porn, you would uh, leave it indexed in your basement, like 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 all right thinking people do. Uh, whereas somebody who leaves it in the woods is somebody who has deep uh, reservations about this dark side of themselves. They're not a, a, a sexually mature, enlightened person. Now, what, what, what's challenging me here... You're skeptical about Eric's theory? Well, no. I, unfortunately, my last real encounter with Woods porn... Day before yesterday. Almost exactly correlates with the end of leaded gasoline... At the gas pump. You have childhood memories of coming across a stash? Woods porn was a, was a fairly um, commonplace thing in my childhood. I discovered woods porn in multiple stashes over the years. And I'm trying to decide, because I have continued to go into the woods, Ken. Looking for porn? No. Oh. Sorry. At a certain point, I stopped looking for porn. Were you walking across Europe just to look for porn in the no, woods? No, but I found porn in the woods in Europe. Doesn't surprise me There at all. was woods porn even in Europe. But when I was a kid, I used to find, if you went into a tree, if you were in the forest and you saw a tree house and you went into the tree house, if you lifted up a piece of plywood on the floor of the tree house, there was almost certainly going to be a playboy under there. And potato bugs. And potato bugs reading Playboy. There one time I I found a Kawitchin hat, but that was in my family's on my family's property. Um, I found woods porn in plastic bags 
in the woods in three different states and in two European countries. But almost all of it went away right about the time. I mean, not with the introduction of unleaded gas because the two were together for a long time. But when leaded gas finally left the gas stations, I have not seen woods porn since. <gasps> Could think, Eric be right? I think Eric's underlying idea is that uh, it was lead in the gas that was turning young men into into sexually repressed weirdos. Taking lead out of the gas led it to a golden age of sex positivism that has, uh, well, got us to where we are today. <laughs> If you a can, legendarily sex positive culture. If if you can, if your own chronology, we're so free now. Please send us your own. We're, we're virtually Sweden. Please send us your own chronologies of woods porn so that we can decide how well it accords with EPA regulation. Not on porn, but on lead. I would like to hear your woods porn stories. Are you talking to me or to the listener? To the listener, but. Um, Maybe we End should. the story with the finding of the woods porn. Don't continue. <laughs> we all assume everyone just sets down the piece of plywood and goes about their day. That's right. Oh, wow. A playboy. Better leave that. I don't have any woods porn stories, possibly as a result of growing up overseas. Is there no porn in Korea? Uh, Yeah. Is that from the Bible? <laughs> is there no porn in Korea? <laughs> um, how much time did you spend in the woods? There, there weren't any woods. The Japanese cut down all the trees. I guess that's right. the main problem in Korea. There's probably porn, but no woods. Other places, woods, but no porn. For example, uh, Nunavut. Mm -hmm. Woods, but no porn. But, but we, you, live, we live in the Pacific Northwest, a great intersection of uh, woods and pornography. So much wood and so much porn. But you spent time in Edmonds. Did you not go into the woods in yeah, Edmonds? We, I, th I feel like we wandered around a ton. I don't remember, I don't remember porn jumping well, out. You know what? You're the type of kid that when he saw a piece of plywood, he probably didn't look under it. Well, that was because like, that plywood belongs there. That's because I didn't want to see centipedes and garter snakes, and I stand by my decision. What kind of kid doesn't want to see centipedes and garter snakes? Ew. That's the number one thing Ew. around here. I had cousins who wanted to see centipedes and garter snakes, and I kind of made fun of them. And now Potato I feel bad bugs, for my classist. Centipedes, garter snakes. And pornography. Well, pornography is just the, the add-on. That's, <laughs> that's the unexpected gift of looking for garter snakes. It's the dessert. Entry 495.NU2653. Certificate number 28876. The four-color map problem. Uh, Jesse alerted us to news in the world of the four-color map theorem that had gone under my radar. Does this news have to do with the fact that I am constantly being pitched uh, video games for my phone where I'm supposed to... Color maps? Yeah, fi find a way to have the colors of these different sections never touch one another. Oh no. It drives me freaking crazy. I didn't know that was a genre of game. This, this episode goes all the way back to 2019. What's going on? This is a very old one, but, um, er, last month in late May, a, uh, mathematician named Neil Calkin was at a conference. No relation to whom? Macaulay. <laughs> Yeah, no, no relation to Macaulay or Kieran Culkin, I can only assume. Uh, was at a math, he teaches at Clemson, I think it looks like. He was at a math conference where he reported that 
two well-respected mathematicians in the field, David Jackson and Bruce Richmond, were preparing a five-page human-readable proof of the four-color map theorem. Wait a minute. It's human-readable? If you'll recall, the four-color map theorem had been proved, but it had been proved by a lengthy and laborious computer-driven search um, that is not really understandable to not just the layperson, but even the human theoretician. You just kind of have to take the take the algorithm's word for it that it's looked at all the cases and it's boiled it down to four colors for each. So is this a new theorem or is it just a... Sorry, a new proof. Is it just a translation of, of, of the proof that was already made? This would apparently be a new and novel proof from a different angle um, that would be the long sought after intuitive proof of the four color map theorem. That's Unf- exciting. Un- it would be. Unfortunately, the very next day, uh, Calkin deleted the tweet after, after, you know, after replying to a bunch of interested folks on Twitter saying it's a solid proof, very easy to understand some tricky stuff, but it's a, it's a path that lots of people have been using to study the, to try to prove the theorem recently. Um, I haven't seen a preprint, but I know the two mathematicians involved, so I know what they will be up to. Um, and then the next day, he tweeted, he deleted it and said, Yesterday I tweeted some news that may be a bit premature. Oh. I promise everyone who is excited by that news that when I know more and can say more, I will. Oh, no. Still hopeful, smiley face emoji. So, what? Cold he, fusion. Well, yeah, maybe. Or did he just, is there a preprint out there? And this guy jumped the gun and got in trouble because he was. Oh. You know, it was supposed to be what happens at the Ontario Math Conference stays at the Ontario Math Conference, and Neil jumped the gun. We don't know. Possibly by the time you're listening to this addenda entry, there may be, at long last, an intuitive proof of the four-color map theorem. I'm rooting for an intuitive proof of the four-color map theorem. I always like another good cold fusion. I like to see mm-hmm. people tweet in ill-advisedly. It's, it's my favorite thing. So, Yeah, but— We'll either get one of the two out of it. I got really hung out to dry by the um, by the the recycler factory that turns everything to oil. I've been waiting for that for ten years. You did a show saying it was coming, and that was super mad three or four years ago. Super mad about it. So I'm I'm rooting for all theorems. I don't because I want the good ones to be true. You think like the, cold fusion. You think the four color map theorem is is. Uh... Ethically good in some way? No, what I'm saying is I, I don't care about the four-color map theorem, but if by association then it makes cold fusion in a coffee can possible, I would – I'd like – what I want is all theorems to be true. Even the ones that are – contradict the other ones. I'd also like my house to be four feet wider. I spent a lot of time thinking about how I would make my house four feet wider. If it were four feet wider, would this, would this affect your, uh, your neighborhood disputes? <clears throat> yeah, I might not be here today. Because it would be so nice you wouldn't have left. I'd have two extra feet on this side, two extra feet on that side. Well, not necessarily. You could have no extra feet on this side and four extra feet on that side. No, but that's the thing. In order to make my house four feet wider, I want it to be— It gets uniformly wider. I want it to be split down the middle and two feet added to each side. Uh, You could do that. It's a very expensive remodel. (laughs) It would be so expensive. Think of all all the appliances that would have to move exactly two feet out for the property line. 
It feels like something that a crazy person would do, like a crazy billionaire, just to do it to to do it. It was it's a prank you would do to a to an enemy. You would while they're out of town for a week, you would make their house two feet wider on each side, and they come home and think they're shrinking. If somebody you, you do did, it repeatedly, if somebody did that as a prank to me, I'd be so grateful. I, I mean, it's so different than like than changing their shoes and making all their shoes one half size smaller. If there's any co- general contractors out there who would love to do a hilarious prank on John, just. <laughs> Sometime this summer when he's traveling, make his house two feet wider. Two, four and, feet and, wider. And, and every, two feet, two on, feet each on each side. axis. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Entry 788.GE2708. Certificate number 20495. The Milgram Experiment. James recommends reading the Milgram case notes, which are now published and maybe a, a quick read, 150 pages, and uh, not really packed in there. Lots okay. of mar- lots of margins and white space. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> like he was trying to pat it out for his fourth grade teacher. Yeah. Um, it's basically transcripts of different responses. Um, he says, despite what we said in the entry, eventually they did get to versions of the study that included women. I think we we had said, which was true at first, that all the subjects were men. Um, he remembers this because he remembers there's in the case notes, there's a woman who survived a concentration camp. In the experiment? Yeah, she, and she refused to turn the dial afterwards. When she And when interviewed afterwards, she says something equivalent to, I think the world has had quite enough of that. Right. Wow. That's pretty good. Yeah. Like, that's such a great version of, of, of uh, Never Forget or, you she know. She saw right through that. Never Forget the Shoah. I, I think, think the, world the world has had quite enough of that. That's going to be my anti-Holocaust bumper sticker. I feel like that applies to so many things. Almost one-third of the things people say to me, I could say, I think the world has had quite enough of that. Think how many um, of the breaking news tweets you see where you could reply, I think the world has had quite enough of that. It's got to be three-quarters. Almost any tweet you could reply, I think the world has had quite enough of that. Maybe, Ken, maybe we should try this. Tomorrow, you should reply to every tweet I think the world has had quite enough of that, and see what happens. A 90s comedy where the lead character has decided that in response to no matter what people say, he says, I think the world has had mm-hmm. quite enough of that. Your bird will be the scrivener of 2022. <laughs> he also says, he also talks about different, the, the case notes include variants of the experiment that we didn't cover online, many of which the, the uh, Milgram and his uh, co-experimenters learned would decrease obedience. For example... A glass panel between the teacher and the learner, so the two could see each other. Um, huh, or okay. so you could see the the person getting the fake shocks. That would substantially reduce obedience. Right. Um, when, if you replaced the scientist with an obviously recorded message, uh, obedience would decrease. Like, what if you replace the, fact- the science with or scientist with a robot vacuum cleaner? <laughs> Just like. Like when you zap somebody, the Roomba says, you're like, I don't want to continue. And the Roomba goes, <laughs> you must continue. It is imperative that I clean the floor. My bin is full. <laughs> um, so uh, J- Jamie recommends that we, in a moment of boredom, like on he, an airplane, like he often has, he says, uh, check out the Milgram case notes. Thank you for the, the book club recommendation. That's Jamie. cool that they are recently published. Entry 122.LV1933. Certificate number 33734. Billy Jack. I think one of the more controversial parts of this 
entry was me saying what an odd movie Raiders is. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, because it, it, it really has a main character who has no interest, growth, or arc. Well, he does have an arc. He just doesn't have an arc. He loses the arc, and he doesn't get a narrative arc. Right. More like Raiders of the Lost narrative arc, am I right? <laughs> Lol. <laughs> Where he really, uh, you know, he's just a guy who likes to... Um, he's just a guy who he likes to loves see, an arc. He likes to see treasures in museums as opposed to in their native countries, which is maybe a little problematic, but we'll, we'll let that go for now. He's running from his, uh, you know, the wreckage of his romantic past. Kind of, but not really. I mean... He's running toward the wreckage of his romantic past. He seems vaguely rueful about having lost Marion and uh, vaguely um, uh, relieved to have her show up again. That's about it. I mean, he's happy when it turns out she didn't blow up in that basket, I guess. it's when But the, wouldn't all of us be happy if someone we knew didn't blow up in a basket? Not necessarily. I know a lot of people that I would be perfectly fine with them <laughs> getting blown up in a basket. No, I'm talking about the 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 girl in his class who who had mm. uh, I Love You written on her eyelashes or whatever. You must have a lot of fan fiction about her. <laughs> he, he he He's running from her because he doesn't want – he doesn't want to uh, – he doesn't want their uh, imbalanced authority to create a relationship that isn't uh, consensual. Look, we all agree Indy should not be sleeping with his students, even the or the horny girl with the eyelids. I'm throwing all my fanfic out. But uh, I was, I think I was just pointing out that it's like the beginning of this escapist kind of movie where, you know, even Jaws has something to say, you know. What does Jaws have to say? Uh, close the beaches, Mr. Mayor. <laughs> <laughs> um, India is just straight up. This 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 uh, scene is going to be done really well. You'll like this. This one's going to go really fast too. No, Indy's Indy is saying don't let the don't let God's powerful artifacts end up in the hands of the Nazis. He doesn't appear to care about the Nazis at all. It would be very easy to imagine a version of that movie where India is very anti-Nazi, or maybe a little bit like Temple of Doom, where he actually comes to care for the villagers he's helping. If you'll recall, at the end of Temple of Doom, he. Instead of keeping the stones, he he brings happiness back to the village, the, the drought-stricken village. But none of that really matters in Raiders. He why, just likes to run away from things. Why does Indiana Jones not want the Ark to go to the Nazis? It's because he wants it for his for a museum in the United States. Yeah, Indiana Jones has Asperger syndrome. He's not trying to return it to Israel. <laughs> Wouldn't that be an interesting version? I mean, Israel doesn't exist at this point. Right. But, but like, let's say some Zionist group in London yeah, wants right. the Ark. Let's yeah. give them the Ark. <laughs> uh, anyway, during this point, we I think we talked about the scene where, uh, I think we were talking about the, the internet observation that Raiders would be exactly the same whether or not Indiana Jones ever gets on a plane or not. Huh? What? He, just, he basically makes things worse. Oh, I he, see. You know, he, he helps them find it. He, you know, he has to lash himself to a submarine. He's there... You know, they would have, presumably they would have, even if they had, they wouldn't have found it without him. Oh, so the difference is if Indy hadn't gotten on an airplane, the Ark would still be buried in Egypt somewhere. And even if, and if they did find, let's say eventually they find it. Let's say eventually Belloc realizes he only has the half of the amulet with the wrong measurement. Let's say they get it. Uh, he would have just blown himself up on that island before giving it to the Fuhrer. Oh, and it would have just, now it'd be sitting on Crete somewhere in, in a yeah. <laughs> surrounded by Nazi skeletons. <laughs> Maybe that's not true. Maybe the Nazis would have sent a detachment to be like, "Hey, what happened to that French weirdo?" Right. 
Um, Probably not, though. But the Nazis wouldn't have been able to use it because we learned that when you open the ark, it just blows up Nazis. Right. Uh, they didn't read the manual. But wait, if you look at the if you look at the artwork on the ark, no, the uh, angels, no, not the angels. The artwork that Indy references when he or or who who's his professor? Oh, right. Well, they're when, they're not opening the ark. They're just holding the ark. The lightning bolts come out of it with the lid closed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So maybe if Hitler would just read the manual, read the manual. Look at the look at the. Uh, it's it's like IKEA manual. It doesn't have any words. But that implies that Jehovah is fine with the the Je- Jehovah will just you know put, let his ark be used by anybody like it's an appliance, and that he won't step in to be like mm, I was okay zapping Canaanites, but I'm not going to zap Allied troops. The weird thing about Jehovah. Not and I don't want to go on record here. The only one. Everything else about Jehovah you love. The weird thing about Jehovah is very inscrutable. It's true. There are a lot of things Jehovah could do that Jehovah appears not to do. Although maybe if you're omnipotent and there's famine, you could just you could just make it rain, Judeo Christian God. There it is. Stack up the fish for, and just for reasons of his own. Anyway, in discussing Indy's trip to the airport, we t- uh, the airport. In discussing Indy's trip to the airport, yes. we offered him a ride. In discussing his trip to the island, we talked about how he, he gets on that submarine, but somehow survives. Yeah, the submarine never goes underwater. That yes. is the only explanation. Michael sent us a link. Um, oh boy, did a, we did a, we activate the neckbeards? A real deep dive. <laughs> oh no! Into how Indy survives. Okay. The submarine. I'm here. I'm Which here for it. Which means if you can, if you listen to the German, uh, the German voices you hear on the sub, you do hear them diving. Which means the sub dive dive. Which means the sub does go underwater. But if you look in the shooting script, there is a scene that was. Uh, and apparently their photo showing this was shot, and it's in the the uh, Marvel Comics adaptation. Uh, I think DC. It's in the DC Comics adaptation. Okay. Uh, here's a scene, scene 135. Exterior, the periscope, night. The submarine has stopped. The water is calm. The moon is bright. A gentle swell splashes Indy awake. This is a be- beautiful poem. Yeah, Say may- that again, but but with more rhythm. It's a haiku. The submarine has stopped. The water is calm. The moon is bright. A gentle swell splashes Indy awake. It's kind of erotic almost. See, this would be a very different Raiders with this scene. This would have really put us into the mind of this man. What does he want? It can't just be museum exhibits. What what if if Raiders had a Blade Runner-esque narrator? What if Indiana Jones was narrating it and these are his words? I lashed myself to the periscope. The submarine started to descend. I hate submarines. Uh, he blinks trying to regain his senses. He makes an inventory of his body. Surprised to find himself intact, his spirits lift. Some hidden reserve of energy flows through him. He frees his aching arms from the wet leather of his whip, leaving only one loop around his waist to hold him to the sub. So I guess the submarine goes down to... Um, periscope depth. To periscope depth and continues the whole dive at periscope depth. However... I spent some further time down this water hole and realized there's no way that Indy would assume a U-boat would keep its periscope out of the water for this whole voyage. I, in fact, I found a World War I-era U.S. Milit- U.S. Navy guide to German U-boat behavior, which suggests that they would always stay below periscope depth unless they were about to mount an attack. Wait a minute. You did this research. In response to this crazy letter, you actually went and read U.S. Army Yes, I read ONI publication number 32, German Submarines in Question and Answer from the Office of Naval Intelligence, June 1918. Okay. Which confirmed my belief 
that German U-boats would only rise to periscope depth when they were about to look for a victim to mount an attack. Well, not to sit here and nitpick U-boat like tactics. No, 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 bring it on. But I think U-boats being diesel electrics Mm. would not submerge unless they were preparing to attack a ship. You think they would just go above the water all the time? Yeah, because you because they're battery powered underwater. They cannot be underwater indefinitely. They're not like nuclear subs that we have today. So, in order to travel long distances, they have to use their diesel motors, and they spend the whole time on the surface going pop 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 until they see some threat or until they want to submerge. Oh, you know, I think that's a good point. So I'm digging deeper now into this pamphlet. Okay, and you have brought my you have brought to my attention question number fifteen: How long can a submarine run submerged? And it says at her maximum speed only for a short time, one to two hours. But at a slow speed, for long periods, up to 48 hours. Oh, at slow speed. On surface, however, she would avoid running her batteries right down and would come to the surface to recharge them before the expiration of these periods. All right. Well, let's let's get to the bottom of this. I'm assuming... Submarines on surface rarely remain submerged more than about 12 hours. But seriously, you're, you're taking a U-boat across the Mediterranean from Egypt to some Greek island. I'm a, I have always assumed that it was essentially Crete... And from Crete, that makes sense. Something yeah. south, something pretty far south of Greece. From Crete to Alexandria by car ferry today, and and I uh, I'll say you can do it for two hundred thirty euros. I was about to ask what the fare was. Is a twenty hour boat ride. Mm. So for twenty hours, Indy is lashed to the periscope. Come on. Do you think U boats go about the side, the speed of a modern car ferry? A lot slower, I bet. So let's say it's a two-day trip. I mean, you're right that they would have had to spend some of that time above, you know, not submerged. Almost all of it, I'm guessing. Because of their batteries and their diesel engines. But also, this is the middle of World War II. I mean, surely there's going to be some allied traffic between Egypt and Greece. You're right. And they would probably submerge if they were, like, going through some Shipping lane. Shipping lane, right. So Indy would die multiple times. (laughs) I wonder, or like have himself lashed to the to the mast and, you know, up and down, up and down. That sounds terrible. Terrifying. Also, his hands around the periscope, they're going to be able to see that from down below. What are these hands? I mean, he's not a great decision maker in Indeed. general in the movies. I mean, uh, are there, there are other examples of this, right? He thinks He thinks a bag of sand the size of a gold idol weighs the same as a gold idol. It doesn't? Oh, you're saying the size. Yeah. You, the bag of sand he has at the beginning of Raiders is about the size of the idol. Oh, it should be a lot bigger. Unless the idol's hollow. The idol but, could have been hollow. But he can't tell. He's just looking at it and stroking his chin. He's, uh, maybe he's more determined than he is, uh, you know, a, a real planner. He's not a mathematician. He's an archaeologist. Entry 806.JB1010. Certificate number 52260. Moose cheese. We mentioned ostriches, which inspired Kristen to send us all three of her ostrich stories. You're pronouncing it ostrich. You pronounced it ostrich. Ostrich. I made fun of you, but then both were in the dictionary. Really? Yeah. You can call it ostrich. Yeah. You can make a sandwich out of them. (laughs) Why? In what world would you pronounce a terminal C-H on a word, j? Ostrich. 
is how the thing is pronounced, just like pumpkin is how a pumpkin is pronounced. There's no P in pumpkin. I have never been more discouraged in my life than when I looked in the dictionary and found that ostrich was actually there <laughs> as a second pronunciation. Kapow! No longer so superior. The thing is, by the time futurelings are writing dictionaries, uh, all of my alternate pronunciations are going to be considered canonical. They will have taken over by sheer force of your charisma. Yeah, that's right. All those people that are like, why does he put this letter in that word? Kristen has three ostrich stories over the course of a life well lived. Ostrich stories. Live your life in such a way that you have three ostrich stories. Uh, I, okay, I right now have zero ostrich stories, so I'm not living. I'm not living my best life. Uh, as a uh, high school student, Kristen did a science fair project where she wanted to extract lysozyme from egg whites to see if you could use it as an antibacterial. Um, chicken so, eggs. Sounds like she's a nerd. And was a nerd at, at a young age. Uh, that's you know that's pretty like overachiever if you're in high school and you're and you're. Well, she says in her note, "I didn't grow up to become some genius." If you were wondering. Oh, okay. High five, cool girl. Well, I mean, that to me that just sounds like imposter syndrome. You know who's always saying, "Now I'm no genius." Like that's actual smart people say stuff like that. Yeah, that's true. It's the dopes who are like, yeah, "I'm pretty much a genius." <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. The other day I was talking to uh, my daughter's mother slash partner. If you, when you say that, it makes it sound like she's your daughter's partner. My daughter's You need to say mother. my partner slash daughter's mother. My partner mother. slash daughter's It's an Oxford comma issue. Uh, you know, she's a vice president at a company, and she often does the thing that we talk about a lot in our culture, which is she approaches business in a way where she's competing against uh, uh, dumb men and she approaches it from a kind of more, uh, you know, female kind of uh, hey guys, in- inclusive just, uh, way. Yeah. And and then she ends up going, why did I, what happened here? And so yesterday I said, why don't we take, like, get a little figure, a little Star Wars figure, of which we have a thousand. Which one did you use? Uh, well, I haven't picked it yet. Because it you use Hammerhead, I love Hammerhead. It has to look. I have an extra for you. It has to look like a guy who might be the vice president at a tech company, and I'm going to put him on her desk. And whenever she's like in a meeting or about to make a you know an executive decision, I want her to look at the little dude, and and just picture that little dude what he would be doing in that situation which is inevitably like dude i can handle it totally like i'll take what four more employees absolutely <laughs> priority on and i just wanted to hear him say it and then you know hopefully that that will be useful to her just to know what that's what she's up against that this is the dude that you're dealing with and this is the dude who uh you are not but be mindful of this little dude saying these things. But don't organizations need more of her kind of cooperative energy and not less? They do, but she, but she's constantly surprised by the fact that these dudes come back at her with these like crazy like what's up kind of business mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm like preempt the surprise by having the dude on your desk and just picture him. You know what he's going to say. It's just you're not thinking about him. You're going into the thing going, this is a best case. And then the dude is like, well, I would just print out some douchebag off the internet. I don't know if I would use a Star Wars action figure. For you have this. to have a little dude. You have to have this because you need to be able to talk back to it. You need to say like, hey, little dude, shut up. And the little dude's like, ah, okay. Ah, well. okay. 
anyway, good point. That's what we're working with around here. I don't know if it's going to work or not. But. What I'm saying is Kristen is probably actually a very bright person because in high oh. school she was trying to get antibacterials out of eggs. Uh, right. Uh, but uh, she needed a big source of egg to get because it's, a, I guess, apparently it's, there's not much lysozyme in a single chicken egg. But you know what? Chicken eggs are cheap. That's true. You could go. We could go right now with just the money we have in our pockets and probably buy. 50 I could go eggs. up to the fridge upstairs and probably get one for free. You could. Well, yeah, technically. In this case, however, uh, she found a way to get a ostrich egg for free. Hmm. She just went to an ostrich farm uh, in San Diego County and said, "Hey, I'm doing science fair on ostrich eggs," and she they were like, "Sweet, have a free ostrich egg." Uh, See how un- how uncomfortable it is to pronounce it ostrich? No, it's better. No, it hurts. It's like ostrich egg. Ostrich egg. Jig. Ostrich egg. It's it not flows. Ostrich egg. Kajigugu. Whereas it's ostrich egg. Like you're expending, I mean, so much more energy than is necessary. Look, the British talked like that and they took over most of the world. Ostrich egg. By hitting all their consonants just well, yeah, right. Yeah, so did the Nazis. Ostrich. It's true. They had very hard consonants as well. Whereas here in Western United States, ostrich egg. It's an ostrich egg, man. It's just ostrich egg. Let's just call it the O egg. Okay. O egg. Uh, Her friend went by the farm and they just left it sitting out in a basket, this ginormous egg out in front. Ginormous basket. Um, They didn't know how to, she didn't know how to get into the egg. So her science teacher got her an electric drill and they literally drilled through the eggshell, which teaches you that ostrich eggshell is incredibly tough. Mm -hmm. Um, They didn't know what to do with it at that point. After they collected the egg white, so they just kept it till it spoiled. But Kristen, is you know, a, you can is blow a, the yuck out, and then well, you, you can do it out of a chicken egg. But how long would that take to blow out of a ostrich egg? You need to be Dizzy Gillespie. <laughs> Kristen got second place in the Greater San Diego hey, Science Fair. Good job, Kristen. Uh, even before this time, Kristen ate ostrich meat. They were at Chinatown in San Francisco, and they got ostrich meat. In like thin hot pot like slices, uh, she describes it as bitter, tough, and miserable. So, not a recommendation for ostrich meat next time you're in Chinatown. I wasn't in the market for it in the first place. Also, I don't believe that Chinese. Re- I've eaten at plenty of places in Chinatown, and I've never had anybody offer me ostrich. So, maybe this was a prank or some kind of weird club that serves endangered species, like in the. Matthew Broderick movie, The Freshman. So I went to a Korean restaurant in New York City one time that specialized in uh, what what we might call pet meat, which is meat that you would normally put in pet food. Oh, like uh, I'm very relieved to hear the story take this turn. <laughs> no, 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 not the meat of pets. But yeah, it was like a very fancy Korean restaurant, but you could get ostrich or kangaroo or uh, camel, uh, all these things that uh, that I was like, do, do you have beef? And they were like, well, we do have beef. And I'm like, let's go with beef. Tell the kitchen I don't <laughs> want ostrich. <laughs> you guys do, you know, Korean food, famous for your beef. I'm going to stick with what's tried and true and not get ostrich bulgogi. Here's bulgogi tip. Always get the pork. What? Get the spicy teji bulgogi. It's, <laughs> it's better than the beef. What are you talking about right now? You're blowing my mind. I'm gonna. I'm, I've just changed your life. The bulgogi is better with pork. Yeah, I really like the spicy pork. Oh my goodness! How would I have not known that on my own? Well, try it out. I and never would have. And you can find out yourself. Okay. The third and my favorite of the ostrich stories in Kristen's past is about a childhood field. She had a very ostrich-heavy childhood. Ostrich. <laughs> 
Field trip to the San Diego Safari Park. There was a uh, you know a bunch of uh, African animals. No wait, she had a lot around. of ostrich stories, but it sounds like she's never left San Diego. <laughs> yeah, all her, weirdly, no, no, no. She went to she got up to the Bay Area for the second story. Oh right, okay. Right. She's she's got a much bigger ostrich radius than you'd expect. Um, so she's on a tram riding around the this giant uh, safari park field. There's one male ostrich in this whole park, and it's mating season. And it has its eye on a baby giraffe. And so she got to enjoy this baby giraffe running in circles around this field, being chased by a, a lonely rapey ostrich. ostrich? A rapey, the ostrich eventually, or the, the giraffe eventually hid behind mom. And the mom giraffe was enough to scare off the horny O. Have you ever been it. around? A, oh, you know what? You and I. No. Have we, have we ever been around a giraffe together? <laughs> Uh, not not known to me. I've spent I've spent a surprising about you know I don't have any ostrich stories, but I've got a few giraffe stories. And let me tell you, a giraffe, a full grown giraffe, you would not mess with, even if you were a horny ostrich. You Agreed. Would, they are big, big, big. I mean, the thing about having legs that long is that's just a bigger lever to kick with. Like, yeah. think how fast that leg is going when it hits your little oh, your little weird ostrich head. They're they're wonderful. I wish that I had more giraffe time because I think they're just amazing. Giraffes. Giraffes, you heard it here first. I'm pro giraffe. Giraffes, consider it, won't you? You know you know what we haven't done? Uh, very many uh, omnibus episodes on giraffes. I think it's zero. What, you got ideas? Well, I'm going to have to think to- of the Toys R Us bankruptcy. Giraffe. Uh, well, let's see. Um, I spend a lot of time with the giraffes at the Seattle Zoo because I live not far away. Right. And they're uh, majestic beasts. They are. I, I was thinking that you and I had spent some time at the Seattle Zoo because I know that you uh, that you love the zoo. Big zoo family. And, um, and I've been in the giraffe enclosure at the Seattle Zoo. Oh, they let you in? They let me in. Not just because of the thing where you can pay... 15 bucks to feed the giraffe. You, you knew somebody. Have I never told you that story? Uh, uh, so short. No, not really. Kathleen Edwards and Dave Bazan and I had a show scheduled at, Oh, at the, at the, uh, what's the summer zoo series called? No, no, no. At the triple door. Oh, and right before we went on, like we were on stage, just, we were finishing our sound check. We were playing the last bit of our sound check. All of a sudden the ceiling gave way and it started to rain in the theater. The entire theater was drenched because the wild ginger had a clog in their kitchen <laughs> sink and the the ceiling had filled up with, with gray water from the wild ginger until the plaster all gave way and it started pouring in the theater. Oh. Well, there was a line down the block to get in. They had already like, oh, they were like opening the doors and all of a sudden the show was canceled. And we had, of all the years of playing in playing music, you know, you always kind of feel like, God, I wish this show was canceled so I didn't have to do it because playing music is exhausting. But Do they pay you anyway? Well, no. <laughs> but the problem, the problem with it was you get right to that point and you're ready to do you're the show. Amped. You're, you're ready. I've never, ever had a show canceled at that point. You know, canceled the day before, canceled it four hours before. But after you've done your sound check and the doors are open and we were all, it was the craziest thing that had ever happened to any of us. We were tweaking because it was like, we're ready, you know, and it was a good, it was going to be a good show. Anyway, one of the people in line 
at the show to get in was the director of the giraffes at the zoo. And they said, hey, that this must be really a devastating experience for you guys. Would you like to come have some giraffe time tomorrow? You know what will settle you down is exposure to these gentle giants of the savannah. And so the four of us still totally messed up the next day, like messed up. Um, we all went to the zoo and the giraffe people let us in with the giraffes and we spent like a whole sort of lazy afternoon just, I mean, the giraffes are also pretty tweaky. They're they're not used to... They're nervous. They don't want to be there. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> That's what all zoos should say. <laughs> all the animal exhibits should have a little thing that says, they don't want to be here. <laughs> but it was incredible. It was so incredible. You know, they have long blue tongues. They do. They're kooky and they're very big. Anyway, they calmed us right down. I have a kid who's in love with the taper the tapers at the Seattle Zoo. I always pronounce it tapir. Am uh, I wrong? When I, both are in the dictionary. When I say tapir, I get yelled at. By whom? My kid who says it should rhyme with paper. You're the one that yells at me for saying things well, wrong. Well, it's the transitive property. There you go. My kid yells at me. I yell at you. Tapir. It's the, it's the cycle of abuse. <laughs> uh, I like. But it. I don't get to yell at your kid. I like saying it the other way because I call it the great Muppet taper when, when I'm there, which is always a hit. Uh, anyway, my kid wants nothing more than to go feed the tapers. Mm. And what keeps you from using your fame to create this experience? And he's actually, he never says stuff like this, but he's like, dad, you should use your fame to let me feed the tapers. Like what, how much do you think you would have to bequeath the zoo so that I could go feed the tapers? And it turns out there is an answer. Like if you look at the gifting levels for the Woodland Park Zoo, it's like, well, at our uh, commandant level of 50000 a year, you get a free after-hours animal experience of your choice. So they really, there really is a price tag for... $50,000? But it's insane. $50,000? Like, it, is, it is a price tag that you would, you know. So I think there's a better economy of, hey, what's the least... Hey, buddy, what's the least you'll let me in to feed the tapers for? Look, I, I didn't say use your money to get into the tapers. I said use your fame. Fame is the same as money. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I have $50,000 worth of wattage to, yeah. to, to shine on those tapers. That's what and, you do. And they're, they're Starstruck Keeper. You say, would you like 50,000 Doge coins of my fame? <laughs> fame coin? <laughs> if anyone is listening to this who has any uh, pull over the, uh, the, the Trail of Vines rainforest exhibit at the Woodland Park Zoo, um, please come let me dazzle you with Jeopardy anecdotes while my kid feeds uh, 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 cabbage to your tapers. What you're going to get is somebody from the Cleveland Zoo. That's true. Who's like, come next, on out to Cleveland. Next time you're in Cleveland, <laughs> the tapers here are very unhappy. They need you more than anyone. Tapirs. Entry 539.EP0607. Certificate number 21182. The Goodwill Game. Uh, multiple people corrected two of my errata here. Hmm. I believe I said that the uh, some world games were going to be in Birmingham, UK, and in fact, they're going to be in Birmingham, Alabama. <laughs> Which games are these? The uh, Oh, it's the World Games. The World Games. Next month are not going to be in Birmingham in England, as I had assumed, but in northern Alabama. Uh, I also, I think I said that Turner Field in Atlanta is a going concern. And in fact, the Braves do not play in Turner field anymore. Uh, it's been reconfigured back to college football and Georgia state plays there. This concludes boring corrections moment. 
on I'm sorry, I, I drifted off. <laughs> it doesn't matter. During the Goodwill Games show, you mentioned that you have a bunch of your dad's ski trophies. Yes. Terrence, sorry, Terry, uh, writes, Hi, John. Hope you're doing well. There is a long tradition of donating your poor ski trophies to the local ski club that you belonged to at one time. They may even create a space at the chalet to honor your dad's achievements, or they could perhaps recycle the medals and trophies to reward up-and-coming champions at their hosted events. Have you consi- have you contacted the ski clubs in question to see if they want your dad's trophies back? Hmm. Perhaps for a dedicated exhibit to his achievements on and off the slopes? The last time I was at this ski resort, I, ski- I saw that they were running... Um, this was, you know, night skiing. They were night running. Skiing. They were running Serves a, uh, a quiet night, a, like a giant slalom along the 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 same racing trail that we had always skied, where my dad had won all these ribbons. Uh, they were running, and and it, there, there was nobody on the mountain. It was just the ski team was running the, this race, and uh, and so I skied over. And got into the, the starting gate, and I was like, hey, you know, I didn't get all the way in, but I, I got close, and I said, hey, I'm a former member of the ski team, and I saw you guys were running gates here, and I just thought it'd be so fun uh, to, to just, you know, to just run one, one slalom, you know, one, one GS, just top, you know, hey, waka waka. And they said, if you want to join the you know, the uh, night skiing ski gang, it's $250 or something like that. And I was like, oh, I know, but you know, it's like, it's not like there's a big line of people here. I just kind of wanted to, and they were like $250, buddy. And so I had to back out of the, and I was like, meh. So I felt like giving them all my dad's old trophies in the hopes that they, that they put a, like a shadow box to commemorate him up on the wall unlikely well maybe they'll be listening to this if you are a taper keeper at the zoo or if you work at john's dad's old alaska the ski team yeah please let us know we also heard from andrew who noted uh, you know one of the latter goodwill games was held in here in seattle and i guess is now a permanent part of seattle lore Mm -hmm. because you know the official Seattle flag has long been um, a, a seal of the city with a, the the chief self, Chief Seattle himself, in profile. But the new version, the current version, says "City of Goodwill" yeah. around the chief's head, a thing that we never say about Seattle. You know, you might call it Jet City or Emerald City, but nobody's ever going to say, "Oh yeah, Seattle, City of Goodwill." Um, it was, uh, adopted in order to be displayed at the Goodwill Games. Oh, City of Goodwill. Um, but as Andrew notes, this is not a flag you will ever see flown anywhere in the city itself. Um, maybe, maybe there's one at the mayor's office, but nobody knows about or flies this City of Goodwill flag. Maybe the, uh, Goodwill Games was the one and only, was the high watermark of its prominence, and then it. Well, the, the city of, for that and never came back. The city of goodwill flag is really crazy. It's the seal in the center, but it's got like a Gordian knot and waves, and it looks yeah. like there's a lot going on. Yeah, the waves that head up into the upper left part of the flag are very odd. Uh, I guess that's why maybe it's not. Dis- also, there's not that many goodwills left in the city of Seattle. 
I mean, <sighs> the thing is, this is something that a lot of people for, that aren't from the city might not know, but the Goodwill organization of Seattle, but not the Goodwill Games, but Goodwill Industries, yes, is run by a, a by a very different group than the Goodwill Industries of King County, and it's why Goodwills in Seattle are one hundred times better than Goodwills in Tacoma. Mm. So Seattle is the city of Goodwill. Tacoma's the city of crappy Goodwill shopping. If you go to Ballard Goodwill or the Goodwill on Dearborn or the Goodwill on University Avenue, some of the best thrift stores in the region. If you go to any Goodwill south of Des Moines, you're in lame Goodwill land, my what, friend. What about that the Capitol Hill one on Olive or whatever it is? Great. Pretty good, right? Also good Goodwill. Good, 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 Goodwill. Entry 1194.1C0612. Certificate number 29113. Sovereign citizens. I'm emphasizing those ones because that protects me from uh, from being That's right. uh, mandated by Congress. You're a corporation now. I have become, I'm, I'm only answerable to maritime law. The uh, you got a lot of compliments on your sovereign citizen show. Oh, oh, thank did you. Did you read on the fa- Did you read the Facebook page? A lot of um, no. there are a lot of public defenders who have to deal with these guys and other people in the legal system who have seen it firsthand. I did not and, read it uh, because I'm not on social media. Well, that's smart. Um, but but people uh, people liked it. People who were knowledgeable about the subject thought it was covered about as well as it could be. Um, oh, nice. At some point, I mentioned the rum, the daily rum ration in the British Navy. Oh, and somebody was mad about that. Well, Phil, I, I think I uh, implied that it was uh, an ongoing affair. Phil on Facebook notes that the daily rum ration for sailors in the British Navy ended July thirty first, nineteen seventy. You, they got rum in their daily ration as late as nineteen seventy. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's amazing. So it's basically like Harold Wilson's fault or something. I don't care to actually look at the dates. So. Please don't complain. That's cool. Uh, you mentioned something I had never heard of in this entry that was super cool about this um, this kind of offshoot of the sovereign citizens movement, whereby largely um, African American um, militia members right. uh, have adopted their own sovereign state thought technology based on the idea that there's a an very early U.S. treaty with Morocco or British treaty with colonial treaty with Morocco, right? That's right, because Morocco was the first foreign nation to recognize the United States, and therefore that gives them some kind of uh, Moorish uh, identity that supersedes conveniently any federal or state law that would keep them from uh, whatever they, it is they want to do. Correct. Overthrow the U.S. government. Um, really, anything. We heard from a not pay taxes generally. Not pay taxes, um, not pay uh, child support and alimony. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, I we heard from a listener named Dane who uh, who is super into this kind of stuff. He lives in the Boston area, and he sent us a um, a news article from last summer where uh, a sovereign citizens group was carpooling through New England up to Maine to do some paramilitary training. And some state troopers pulled up beside them on the side of the road to see if they needed assistance and immediately had like a dozen black guys jumping out with guns. And it turns into what could easily have been some Waco style standoff just at the side of the, at the side of the turnpike. 
Um, luckily, the whole thing ended without any shots fired. But these were the uh, these were the Rise of the Moors group, mm-hmm. and their leader Jamal Talib Abdullah Bey, who claimed to be a Marine Corps veteran, spent the whole time, um, you know, in a military helmet, lecturing the <laughs> <laughs> lecturing the the police officers about constitutional matters and the court decisions that back him up and so forth. Oh, to be a fly on the windshield. It really sent me down a rabbit hole of reading about uh, this Moorish sovereign citizens movement. And uh, it's interesting. It really overlaps. I mean, they all share these vague ideas in common about what it means to be. There's multiple ways to be a black sovereign citizen, whether or not you're Moorish. Um, a lot of the Native American movements have adopted a lot of the same um, verbiage and, and theories. Um, but it all has, it's all kind of a mishmash of like uh, UFO theories and phony Native American tribes and like black Hebrew Israelism, the idea that, you know, these people are somehow tied to certain lost tribes. And then these 1970s era white paramilitary um, legal interpretations. But did you know that one of the recent cases has uh, of these Moorish sovereign citizens has been in Edmonds, Washington? Really? My birthplace, specifically the Woodway area, which is, I guess, not that far from your from your Innes Arden stomping grounds. Sure. Woodway's kind of roughly between my neighborhood and yours, so I thought you'd be interested in this story uh, from, let's see, when is this? Late 2020... A group of um, these Moorish sovereign citizens were just going door to door in the Woodway area, just going up to waterfront homes and saying, hi, I actually, uh, you know, by virtue of my, um, whatever my indigenous treaty status is, I actually uh, own these properties. They have official looking documents and they ask the residents to please vacate their waterfront Edmonds homes because the Moorish citizens, the Moorish sovereign citizens movement is moving in. It doesn't usually go over well. Right. Um, most of these retirees in Edmonds end up calling the cops. <laughs> uh, yes. Who then, who then have to face the lectures about how actually our group owns everything from Alaska to Argentina. And unfortunately, Woodway, Snohomish County, Washington, lies in between Alaska and Argentina. Uh, so, you know, if you happen to have a nice piece of property, the Moors may come inquiring. Well, one group I can think of that did not sail into the Salish Sea in the 1790s were the Moors. You know, I'd be very sympathetic to uh, some indigenous tribe using these arguments. In fact, I would vacate immediately. <laughs> yes. But like, oh, would you though? <laughs> I would actually. But a bunch of like uh, black Hebrew Israelites explaining that the that the aliens uh, have given uh-huh. them access. Uh huh. It just seems a little less compelling, I guess. Okay. Entry 1095.LK0852. Certificate number 35676. Safety coffins. We have a first-hand note here. These are the coffins designed to uh, provide a fail-safe in case you get buried alive. Ding, ding, ding. It provides, um, you know, a bell to ring, a, some kind of a hilarious horn to honk, a siren goes off. 
the delicious smell of cookies baking fills the cemetery, you know, whatever it is, something mm-hmm. to signal the living. Music box. Uh, it could be a music box. That'd be a creepy, a creepy yes. one. Yes. Uh, Jim uh, wrote to us to say that he grew up in the late 70s, early 80s in Taiwan. Uh, his They had a live-in maid whose grandmother passed away. And he says that as part of the funeral ceremony, they just displayed her body in the main room of the family house for several days so that people could come and pay their respects. On day three, the grandmother sat up and asked what was going on. Whoa. What? <laughs> now, at the point that this arrives to you, this is a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend story because you heard it from me and I heard it from Jim and you know he heard it from his family's 1970s live-in maid. Right. But can you imagine on day three of lying in state? I mean, you after three days, uh, fish and visitors start to stink. Would you really leave grandma in the parlor for three days even if she was dead? I mean, it, yeah, it seems like that's without embalming. I mean, different strokes for different folks, but... Taiwan gets warm and humid in the summer. That would... I don't know what time of year this was, but... I think you would start to notice that the person was not dead, in other words, before they sat up and said something. I mean, presumably she was breathing at least shallowly for much, if not all, of those intervening two to three days. Right. Um, but that is the story from from Jim's childhood. Uh, Eric noted that we we did not bring up the common, uh, the, you've, the maritime lore you've probably heard about uh, of sailors who die at sea and are then sewn into their own hammock or some other kind of canvas for burial. Let's see. Have you heard the thing about how the last stitch of sewing the sailor in should go right through the nose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I guess in one version of the story to ensure... It wakes them up. (laughs) Yeah, if they're dead, that would be the thing. Because if they had just tried that to grandma in Taiwan in 1979, she would have said, ouch, don't um, poke my nose. Uh... So Justin, not Justin, so um, Eric sent me a link of investigating this story. Do you have any idea if it's true or not? It's in the, it's in those Patrick O'Brien books. It's in the Horatio Hornblower books. It's in Outlander. You can go online and find um, both the British Navy and the Royal Australian Navy treating it as an old maritime So you're talking about the, the stitch through the nose? The stitch through the nose. I feel like it, 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 is un, it, it turns the, uh, the, the sailor that is... Stitching their friend into his bastic, like it makes them perform one unnecessarily, like, gruesome... How hard would it be to get that needle? I mean, that needle has to go through sailcloth or whatever, fine, but what, and two layers of cartilage? But just the the experience of putting a needle through a nose is one that you would want to spare your friend. Somebody's got to work at Piercing Pavilion, it, John. It, it feels like an urban legend. Uh, there are cases of sailors about to get buried at sea when it turns out they're still alive in, in uh, Taiwanese grandma fashion. The earliest is in the 1770s. This is, you know, reported a few decades later where five men had been reported dead. All of them had been sewed up in their hammocks and two had been thrown overboard when the third one said, I am alive still, to which the bosun with unreasonable jocularity replied, you alive indeed? What, do you pretend to know better than the surgeon? Lol. Classic bosun. I love the lols that I get on this show. Uh, there is actually no contemporary evidence in the 18th century for putting the last stitch 
through the nose. Um, it's possible that it's a Victorian practice because uh, the online discussion I found here um, sees it in an 1831 uh, magazine article about a sailor's life. But it's the kind of thing where in that article it says, I've heard it said that it's customary to do this, but I've never remarked it myself. So the legend appears to be older than any account of it, hmm. even though it's in Melville's white jacket and uh, then a bunch of other 19th century bits of folklore. In some of in some cases, it's not explicitly to make sure the person's dead. It's more of a superstition. It's like, um, this makes sure that his ghost will stay down, you know, and he right. won't. He won't come back to haunt the ship. So there's two different versions of the of the legend. But it does not appear to be actual maritime practice at any point, if anybody was wondering. I would think in a lot of cases you could just you just give him a kick. Yeah, just give take, him one swift kick. Take that needle that you're not gonna jab through the cartilage of the nose and just like poke him in the ass a few times, right? Yeah. yeah. It seems a lot easier. Yeah, when the when the bear bends over to take a pee, kick him in the ice hole. Entry 1413.IS5720. Certificate number 40450. Waterbeds. Uh Nathaniel noted that our two 80s 90s uh literary uh, uh, pop culture references to the waterbed which were uh Edward, them being slashed in Edward Scissorhands and in one of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, points out that the central character in both those scenes is played by Johnny Depp. Uh, really? Yeah, he's the victim of, of Freddy's attack in the first oh. uh, Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Oh, interesting. So there's a Johnny Depp connection, an he, unintentional one. He just loves waterbeds. We take no... And pretending that his ex-wife pooped in them. We take no sides in the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp uh, controversy. Do we, Ken? Eh, Do you take a side? <laughs> they, they both seem pretty awful. Is that a side? I was not following along uh, because I was not on social media, but it got to me anyway, Ken. It got to me. I don't know how. Through the groundwater. Uh, but not... It got... To me, not enough for me to have any opinion. Did about you know it. our friend Maria was watching every hour of the courtroom footage? Really, she she, she and Poppy really got into it. You know, Meryl Marco, former uh, producer Letterman. of the David Letterman Show. Uh, Meryl Marco, do you know Meryl? A little. I, I met her. Murray introduced me to her once at a bookstore. I think she's wonderful, and I thought she was wonderful even back in the day before I knew her. She's I just, so funny. She just seems so wonderful. Really, the, the voice of those early Letterman shows is largely Meryl's sensibility. Um, she was clearly watching every every second of them, but she was watching it with closed caption on her TV, and she screenshotted every time... Um, Every time the closed caption uh, got, got Johnny Depp's name yeah, wrong. I saw that. <laughs> and, and that alone was funny, uh, just to it follow It would say deaf. It would say derp. Derp. Dorp. Here are two really good waterbed addenda. Did we mention Charles Hall by name? He was the San Francisco grad school student who, yeah. you know, he didn't invent them, but he's considered the inventor of the modern waterbed because he was... You know, he he made them a mass sales item. Yeah, he appeared. Did you know that he currently lives on Bainbridge Island? We need to go. We need to we make need a to, pilgrimage. We need to go ring his doorbell. And Ping I and I read an interview from last year that says he's getting back into the waterbread game. Waterbread, waterbed game. 
from, despite being uh, 111 years old and living on Bainbridge Island. He credits the downfall of the waterbed. I mean, I think on the show we largely pointed out that it was memory foam and other good, good yeah. new mattress tech. But he blames it on a bunch of shoddy suppliers who didn't understand that the bed needed a lot more, you know, firmness and rigidity. And it needed naga hide. It needed mirrors. It just needed to be, you know, a little sturdier than the than the balloons and bubbles that his competitors were selling on the cheap. And so he's you need to have woodworking done with a hot iron. You need upholstery. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he's getting back into the game. I think his new adventure is called Afloat or something with the kind of quality waterbeds that he thinks would have continued to dominate the market if he if he had had his way. 100% he is a Jeopardy fan. And 100% if we showed up on his door, he would embrace us and bring us in and probably give us a waterbed. Maybe a waterbed each. Hopefully a waterbed each. I mean, if if there's only one, it seems like I would get it since you said he was a Jeopardy fan. You weren't like '90s indie rock fan Charles Hall. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm thinking though that I know your house and you have expensive beds. Um, the water bed really belongs at my house. Where would I even put it? I have a, I literally have a bedroom with orange shag carpet. In it. <laughs> You're ready to go. Mirrors on the ceiling to pick champagne on ice. Uh-huh. My favorite note was from Matt, uh, who was reminiscing about his own waterbed childhood, pretty much bouncing on his friend's parents' waterbed, which I think is probably the most common 70s and 80s waterbed memory. Apparently, we brought up waterbeds for cattle uh, during the show. And Matt sent, uh, I think he sent us agricultural know-how before. He must be in the industry. Uh, He says that, Cow waterbeds are increasingly popular on dairy farms. Really? Some on the beef side. And he sent me a link to um, to kind of a next-gen, high-tech cow mattress website, Promat, the leader in animal comfort, which really makes the sales claim that uh, any money you put into giving your cow something nicer to sleep on than straw will absolutely pay off in dairy yield and cow longevity. So you get Whoa. you get more and better milk for longer every time you upgrade your cow's bed. Cows- more and bigger milk for longer, that is our new slogan. Did you say, oh, you said more and better. More and bigger is good, though, too. More and bigger milk for we longer. We wish you more goods and more <laughs> cheese. Apparently cows, um, you know, they'll sleep on straw, but if you give them a rubber mattress... They'll be happier bow, 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 bow. and give bing, you more bing, milk. Bing, bing, bing. And if you give them a nice squishy waterbed, I mean, cows are very big, so it's hard for them to get comfy with that big dairy cow body. And also, they... Uh, cows are big, and it's hard for them to get comfy. Go on. They're basically heat pumps. Cows, I'm writing these down. Cows put out a lot of heat. Mm-hmm. So an unheated waterbed okay, is cow, perfect, because what they want is to be... Cows put out a lot of heat. They want okay. the cool side of the pillow. And if you give them an unheated waterbed, they are so happy. You're saying they cows want to keep the cool side cool and the hot side hot? That's right. Okay. I mean, not actually. It, by the time the cow is the McDLT, it doesn't care so much <laughs> sure. about the hot side hot. <laughs> but when a cow is trying to sleep on his or her, probably her, dairy farm, uh, she just wants to stay cool, which means a waterbed is perfect because it, it suctions away, you know, it's full of unheated water and it, it wicks away the cow's... Body heat. Yeah, it wicks it away. 
So cows love waterbeds, and apparently they'll pay for themselves. Like you, if you're a dairy farmer, you get like a thousand waterbeds for your cows, and it, the dairy yield more than makes up for the. Account. How can you afford not to buy waterbeds for your cows? Is the conclusion? Why would anybody be letting their cows sleep on straw? Like, what are we, uh, Azerbaijan? Here's what I want. American cows <laughs> get waterbeds. Here's what I want for my birthday. I want. The cattle farmers and milk producers and cheesemakers that listen to Omnibus to report to us that they, on the strength of that episode, have purchased waterbeds for their cows where they would not have otherwise. And compare your dairy yields before and after. Yeah. I'd like all that information by the middle of September. In a pie chart. Entry 1431.JG1414. Certificate number 35725. Why is a mouse when it spins? This was about kind of nonsense or absurdist faux riddles and jokes. Riddles um, and jokes. An- riddles and jokes. Anti-humor. Um, we talked about shaggy dog stories. Yes, we you know, did. The, the stories that go on and on, and the whole point is that there's not a good gag at the end. The blue ping pong balls. Stephen uh, wrote in with his own example of these, which I had kind of neglected, which is the shaggy dog pun. It's like a hilariously convoluted story that introduces a, a series of characters and their improbable events. And the whole point is to get to some, at the end, some spoonerized or approximate version of a of a popular saying. Is like the aristocrats? It's basically the aristocrats, but if the punchline was, the koala tea of mercy is not strained. Like you tell a long story about koalas making tea, a koala, named, a koala bear named Mercy who's brewing tea, and she decides not to use a... A tea bag, and that's because the koala tea of mercy is not strained. But in, in, in versions of these, you often tell the story in a, in a lengthy way to make the, the person even madder when the story ends. A niche in time saves Stein. This seems like something you would really embrace, like to do on a Christmas, like sitting around the fire with the family. My dad loves it. Oh, your dad. And of so, course. so you know, I think it kind of ran, petered out in that generation. Um, but, so your dad. But there's a t- there's a tape. Have you seen this clip of Mitt Romney trying it out at, a, at like an Iowa or New Hampshire diner? <laughs> no, but it's so Mitt Romney. He sees, it's it's <laughs> the most Mitt Romney dad joke. Like he sees some guy eating eggs Benedict. He's like, "How's that Benedict?" You know, the New Hampshire guy just yeah. wants to eat his bread. That's fine. And he's like, "You know, sometimes I think they should use hubcaps for that instead of plates." And the guy's like, "What?" And he says, yeah, you should always serve Eggs Benedict on hubcaps because there's no plates like chrome for the hollandaise. Wow. And he's on tape trying this out. He thinks he can be president on the strength of there's no plates like chrome for the hollandaise. (laughs) Yeah. And? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We also heard from, I think I talked about the anti-joke of the, um, there's a non-joke about a brick that gets thrown into the air and disappears and then... Later, you tell a second joke and the brick reappears, so you get kind of two uh-huh. non-jokes for the price of one. Hollis wrote in with improved. He had also he also knew about this combo. He had better brick joke technology. After you tell the first joke where the brick disappears, you can say, "I guess that one didn't land mm. because the brick mm-hmm. disappeared." And mm-hmm. you see, mm-hmm. does not land. Mm-hmm. And then you know somebody else. Tells a funny story. He, he says, don't tell the middle joke yourself. Let somebody else trade off. He's imagining some kind of 1970s traveling salesman or campfire vibe where right. someone else is going to jump in with a joke. Or as some might 
call it just a normal conversation mm. between a group of people where everybody <laughs> goes around and tells tells one one tells joke, one rehearsed joke. <laughs> we all we all love that kind of. Have you ever been to Comic Con? Oh, why is my phone ringing? Is Stop there a, ringing. Are we on a submarine again? Oh, it's Jason Finn calling. Maybe we should... Wait, that's your ring? Yeah, it's Jason Finn's ring. Uh, what do you want, Jason? Uh, do you really have a Coleco Donkey Kong? I do have a Coleco Donkey Kong. Hey, Jason, this is Ken Jennings. Can you hear me? Oh, must be Wednesday. <laughs> this is the only way to know if it's Wednesday, is if you call yeah, John about Coleco I mean, and I answer? How many, how many of you guys have in the clip? Like, if you had to stop recording today, how long could the show go on? Today we recorded shows for, what, mid-August? Yeah. Because we, nice. we travel a lot in the summer, so... We're actually in the middle of recording. You are currently the only person, if we leave this in, the only person who has ever appeared as a guest on Omnibus. The, oh, no, except for Amy, Amy Mann. Amy Mann, you are the second guest musician. Musical That's guest, it. Jason Finn. Yes, thank you, thank you. Um, okay, well, I'll just make this quick then. Please put your Donkey Kong, your Dong, Key Kong, um, in the car so that it shows up at Dim Sum next time. All right, when is the next Dim Sum? I don't know. All right, good. I'm glad that we're, neither of us know what day it is and neither of us know yeah. when we're having Dim Sum next. But we know when it's Wednesday. And we know that I have a Coleco Donkey Kong. Uh, yes, yeah. well, that's the best news I heard all day. Goodbye. Bye. Presidents of the USA drummer Jason Finn making his omnibus debut. That's not your phone. That's a truck backing up. That's a truck backing up. My phone sounds like a submarine. <laughs> is my ringtone on your phone a truck backing up? Uh, no, your ringtone is uh, the Beastie Boys going, check your head. You should have, you should have a, the ringtone for beautiful women on your phone should be a truck backing up. Right? Beep, beep, here she comes, look out Back that thing up Oh boy Well, uh, that's a rare addenda treat To get Jason Finn on the show Yeah, you know, I think that Musical be- guest, <laughs> given, Jason Finn Given how often he appears on podcasts I, 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 um, I mean, and by that I mean podcasts that I do I think people might think that I like him more than I do I really don't You guys are he's friends? Off. No, he's awful I like Jason. Is that just because I see him less than you? Is that is that the secret? You know what? You should come to dim sum with us, and that might change yeah. Invite me to dim sum. Who's your dim sum group? Uh, it's a is it all musicians? Uh, no, no. There's not. There's one that's not a musician. You, you you can be our special guest. Yeah, you should always have a guest that you bring to dim sum and then kind of interrogate. Yeah, exactly. We're all so bored of each other. Uh. Anyway, so Hollis's idea is that you let someone else tell a joke and then you go back to tell the second part. And that really l- leaves them. Then, then people are just rolling in the aisles. Blown away. When they hear that follow up. I mean, a lot of these jokes work best with kids because kids are amazed by any new tech- humor technology, right? Right. Uh, Jai Smith from Australia told us that there, the. Um, what, the kind of gibberish, the nonsensical phrase that you can... Oh, I thought you were going to say the gibberish of the Australian accent. I mean, all Australian slang is essentially gibberish. It's like, what, you call that a lake? We call that a watery diddly doodly. <laughs> but Jai says that when um, when you have nothing to say to a follow-up, uh, to, to follow up to, a, to something uh, dumb or obvious or ignorant or useless, you just say, well, we're not here to F spiders. 
Whoa, that's something they say in Australia? Apparently. But they don't say F. They say the whole swear word. They not, they not just F, but they then say three more letters, John. One is a C, uh-huh. one is a K. And one is an asterisk. And the second one is an asterisk, <laughs> if you can believe it. So we need Australians to actually tell us if this is a thing. Do you really say... Well, we're not here to... Well, we're not here to F spiders. Spoiters. Spoiders. Spiders. Yeah, that's not right. Uh, no, I don't know it either. Uh, spiders. Spiders. Is, is that even... Spoiders. I mean, they do have a lot of spiders. And presumably most of them are not there to have sex with them. Big, hairy ones. But you know, who knows what a spider's there for? And Mitch, I thought this was interesting. Mitch wrote in to point out that there is actually a modern equivalent. Because we were just talking about the kinds of things that fourth graders would say in the 70s and 80s, these kind of stupid nonsense jokes. You're saying there's a modern way to say we're not here to F spiders? I'm saying there's, feels a, pretty modern. there's a modern, an even more modern equivalent of just the kind of the goofy baby boomer kind of, uh, what were the examples? Why is a mouse when it spins? Or, right. uh, uh, or what's well, the difference between a bear yeah. or, or whatever? Um, there's, a, there's a lot of memes that hinge on just being a kind of weird word salad, you know, like, but has anyone really been far even as decided to use even go on to do look more like? Yes. And this is the kind of thing that... But that's from 4chan. <laughs> all of them are probably from 4chan. <laughs> I guess there's that one that's from that Miss America contestant that just kind of babbles. Oh, right, right. But people love memes that are full of just kind of nonsensical, broken, indecipherable English. Right. So this is the new when is a mouse they're, they're when like, it spins. They're like Yogi Berra-isms. But they're not. But the paradox is not obvious, right? It's it's just more like. In a lot of them, the uh, it just seems like you're having a stroke even to read it, much less to say it. Yeah, they don't think it be like it is, but it do. That's actually kind of a good Yogi Verism. Yeah, it yeah, is. I mean that. Yeah. I mean that you can say to everything. That's our that's our version of well, we're not here to f spiders. <laughs> they don't think it be like it is, but it do. So, uh, Ken, is there an Esowit update? Yeah, what well, we always finish the addenda by um, updating our listeners on Omnibus's official adopted elephant calf in Nairobi, Kenya. Esowit? Esowit? We, we've been saying Esowit for long enough that I hope we don't change it now. Although now that I look at it, there is another elephant whose name ends with O-I. So if that is a diphthong in uh, in Swahili or whatever the Bantu languages we're dealing with here, maybe it is Esoit. So last time we talked about how Esoit and Bondeni were kind of being bad influences on each other. Yeah. And as I look through the May updates from this Wildlife Trust, they are actually calling Esoit and Bondeni naughty boys. Oh, okay. just, just every time they're introduced, it's like... Well, Ting Guy's been gaining more and more confidence and has been spending more and more time with the naughty boys, Esowit and Bondeni, rolling around on the dust uh, dust mound. We should say to Esowit, if Bondeni jumped off a bridge, would you? You don't have to do... I mean, he's... If Bondeni rolled around in a mud pit, would you, Esowit? If Bondeni is stealing the, the your morning milk ration, then he's not uh, your friend to begin with, in my opinion. Agreed. Um, in early May... The orphans went out into the forest. Esowit and Bondeni were rolling around, and they were both those two because they're the little they're the little rascals. They were looking for unsuspected victims to climb onto their backs. I guess it's kind of a playful dominance thing mm-hmm. that these young male elephants do is to hop on board, and so they're always looking for a chance to 
to jump on an elephant that's not looking. Esowit immediately made the first move. So Esowit is corrupting Bondeni. Climbed onto Kinye's back, but Kinye had already been submerged in the mud, and Kinye was slippery. Oh, okay. So Esowit kept falling off, and then Bondeni saw Esowit was starting to jump on the back game, and he ran over and jumped on Esowit's back. Boom! So Esowit kind of had it coming. But then Bondeni was sliding off too. Eventually, he grew frustrated and pushed Esowit off Kinye so that he, Bondeni, could jump onto Kinye. And then Esowit took that wrong, and they started up with a little wrestling match. This is my favorite part, this sentence. Their game continued right up until it was time to have their nine o'clock bottles of milk. Oh, I mean, that's a good life, right? That's a pretty good life. You can all go get muddy and jump around. What time do they get their bottle of milk? Nine o'clock? I guess that's their breakfast bottle of milk. Presumably there's more to come later in the day. I'd like a breakfast bottle of milk I mean, every imagine day. Imagine how big that, how comically big that baby bottle is for a, a baby elephant. <laughs> is it like the size of a... Of a like a pony keg? Yeah, it would be yeah bigger than a keg, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Like how much milk can an elephant drink at 9 a.m.? If an elephant drink could drink milk. Well, we're not here to have elephants. Elephants like to jump on each other, it turns out. I'm looking at pictures of elephants jumping on each other. Do you think it's sexualized? I don't. It doesn't seem like it. They just seem like they're having fun. Not every time a human jumps on somebody else is sexual. No, that's true. Although it kind of is. Like a lot of that kind of male wrestling, it now turns out to have been incredibly homoerotic the whole time, and we can finally admit it. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda, Volume 32. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.